0: Good morning, everyone, both here and at at home. Good morning to you as well. Have another cup of coffee on me, and uh, enjoy God's presence today with us here and at home. I would like to start with a word of prayer, if that's okay. Father God, uh, this is a season and a week in the year that we remember. We remember the sacrifices that were made for us, that we could have freedom in our country. Remember soldiers who gave their lives Those veterans who still live with the memories that they uh, sacrificed so much and saw many of their friends not come home. Father, we are grateful for how people gave their lives on our behalf uh, for freedom. Today we also remember a sacrifice made 2,000 years ago on a cross that Jesus Christ gave his life that we could have freedom as well. So it's a a week to be grateful, to, to look back, at what has happened, and to look forward to how we can celebrate the life and use it the best as we can to glorify God. pray this in Christ's name. Amen. How many of you have at least 60 books in your home? Raise raise your hand. At least 60. Okay. Now, all of you who didn't raise your hand, if you have a Bible, you have at least 66 books (laughs) in your home. So uh, just say you have a small library yourself. Our home, we have so many books that uh, we actually have a, a library, one of the rooms in our homes with just, just books in there. And then I've got my own library here. But I, I'm looking at the uncommon scriptures today. I'm looking at how God's Word is sta- stands alone in all of the world, in all of history, is a unique book. This book was written over 1500 years by some 40 different authors and they were these authors were not just guys sitting back getting royalties for their books these were kings and soldiers and farmers and fishermen tax collectors doctors, doctors missionaries soldiers prophets shepherds these were people that God came to and inspired what they were to write on his behalf so they weren't really words or books written by men so much as they were God speaking through people to tell us what was on his heart. There are historical books and poetry and prophecy, that kind of a thing. It's fascinating that throughout all of these 1,500 years of writing and, the, and the, uh, all the decades and centuries of recopying and copying God's word, how c- completely consistent it is from the beginning to the end, how all the books kind of tell the same story, how they're all variations on a theme of God's love for his people. And... Frankly, when I look at the Old Testament, I would, if I was a Hebrew, I would have trashed several of the books because they, might, they may cause people to look pretty bad. Uh, you, know, you know, Let's just leave off the books that talk about our rebellion and the exile into Babylon and those kind of things. They don't really paint us in a very good light, but they were God's word. And so all these books are included together. It's interesting, this book also, the Bible, is uh, claimed by, parts of it at least, claimed by three world uh, religions, Islam, Judaism, and Christianity. And uh, there's uh, 66 books, 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New Testament. And I want to just look just briefly at how it was put together. For those of you who don't know, and for those of you that do, this is review. But in the Old Testament, the Hebrew people decided that these 39 books would comprise their Torah, each of these books were written in Hebrew, and uh, they, 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 they all believed they were bona fide prophets of God that wrote them, or Moses, the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, and King David, Psalms, uh, King Solomon, uh, Proverbs, and Ecclesiastes, and so on. They knew these people. They're part of their lineage and part of their history that wrote these books. And in the New Testament, the, the requirement for being included into the New Testament was that it had to be from an eyewitness. Of Jesus, so the twenty-seven books were either eyewitness accounts or written from eyewitness accounts, um, and, and several disciples and apostles wrote these books. So we can we can be rest assured that books that were just randomly put together uh, weren't thrown into this. In fact, it was it was a a, a group of um, of religious leaders, the bishops of All of the different Christian groups that were around in AD 397 came together at the Council of Carthage and said, enough is enough. Let's decide which books get into the Bible. And so they chose these 66 books. Now, there's a a group of books, I'll just say, called the Apocrypha. uh, And they're they're disputed books. We don't have them in our Bible. But uh, Roman Catholic and Orthodox people include the Apocrypha into their Bibles. And they do have some historical value and some poetic value, but in my view, they're inconsistent with the other 66 books of the Bible. In fact, uh, they were written, they called, into the, in, during the intertestamental period, meaning they, after the Old Testament and before the New Testament. And some of the authors are actually disputed. So if you were a struggling author, you wanted to write a book, but you knew you would never get published, you could put someone's famous name on the book. This was written by the disciple Thomas, and you can get your book accepted by lots of people because you put someone else's famous name. And that's, that's what they call, this is another long word I learned in, in seminary a hundred years ago, pseudepigrapha. It means those books that were written with the wrong people's names listed as the author. We don't know who wrote them, but they're purported to be uh, holy and scriptural. But So the Council of Carthage says, enough playing around, let's go ahead and... Fixed the number of books, we call that the canon, Um, not a a military weapon, but a canon is a a body of work that has consisted, the core books of the Bible, and no more. And so, um, Josh McDowell, he, he says this of the Bible, he says, the Old Testament is the preparation. The Gospels are the manifestation. The book of Acts is the propagation, the epistles give the explanation, and the book of Revelation is the consummation it all works together to bring us the story of God's love for us so the first testament it was divided into two testaments the the we call it the old one and the new one and they both had purposes for being written and they together they form a unified book of what we call the bible holy scriptures the old testament set up basically the need for the new testament it brought a foundation of a sacrificial system, how to get right with God, a temple worship, uh, altars, uh, burning sacrifices, and all of these things were drawing our view to the New Testament when Christ would come and become the ultimate sacrifice. There was covenants that were established in the beginning of the uh, Old Testament. All throughout the Scriptures, there were covenants. In the Garden of Eden was a covenant. There was a covenant with Adam. With Noah, with Abraham, with Moses, there's a land covenant, a Davidic covenant, and then finally in the New Testament, a new covenant was established. And so, throughout the years, you know, a lot of times the church would would keep the Bible pretty close and go, "Uh, mine, they didn't want the people to actually have it because the church needed the control and the power, it seems like. But a guy named John Wycliffe in 1382 decided, no, it's for everybody. This book wasn't written for pastors and priests and bishops. This book was written for every person. They should have access to God's Word in a language that they can understand, not Latin. They had, in the church back in the early days, they would speak Latin, and that's where we have <laughs> a lot of misunderstandings about what the Bible was actually saying. 1382, John Wycliffe took the Bible from Latin, translated it into English, and um, about uh, 200 years later, a guy named William Tyndale decided, you know, Latin was nice, but let's go back to the original Greek and Hebrew and translate this book so that we can understand it from the original languages. And for his work, he got burned at the stake because (laughs) they didn't want the Bible in the common person's hands. And then they decided, the religious leaders of the day decided, you know what, we don't really like what uh, John Wycliffe did, so let's dig him up and burn him too, just to make a statement. Well, it was too late. The Bible was out. People had it. Uh, they were hiding copies of it in their houses because they wanted to see what God said for themselves. The first authorized Bible in English, who knows who did the first authorized Bible in 1539? A lot of people think King James, it was actually Henry Eighth. And a hundred years later, James I had an authorized version in 1611. So, you know, the Bible in itself, a lot of people think it's just a mystery. Like, what's the point? Like, you read it, you don't understand it. And they, they, people have said over the years, it's, it's so harsh. There's so much blood in the Old Testament. Like, how, do you, how can you read that? I just stay with the New Testament because it's a lot nicer. And you know, it's about love and grace and hope. Old Testament has got so much you know, stuff I can't explain. Or it's just so confusing. I don't know, who begat, who begat, who begat, who? Like, what's going on in this book? And they just kind of shut it down and think it's not understandable. And sometimes it's just left on the shelf for for a very long time. Some people say, I read the New Testament because that's where all the good parts are. (laughs) That's the parts that I can understand. And it talks about Jesus, right? That's what's important. Well, I was thinking about that. And I thought, you know, if you watched the last show of the Lord of the Rings, it's pretty dramatic. You know, you could have a good time. Or um, maybe uh, Harry Potter, the very last show of, I don't know how many is in the series, six or seven. Just watch this. Watch the last one. It's, it's decent, you know, but you, you miss the whole point of it. If you don't look at the first couple of The Lord of the Rings, you don't really get the whole context for the last. What is it called? The coming of the king or something? I can't remember. And then the, the Harry Potter, like, what's the whole point of the last one? Who's this Voldemort guy anyways? But if you watch the series, you get the context of what the last one. The last one's victorious. The good guy wins in the end. Sorry if I, you know, burst your butt. The Bible's the same way. The the New Testament is fantastic on itself. But you miss the whole context if you don't have the Old Testament. That's what makes the New Testament come alive in a sense of why did we need a cross? Why did we need a Savior? What's the point of all of that? It's because the Old Testament sets it up to say, we could never achieve salvation on our own. We could never achieve it through the sacrificial system. It was there to show us how inadequate all of our efforts were to please God, so he sent a son once and for all. The Old Testament is the explanation for the New Testament. It's the demonstration for why we need a New Testament. Take, a New Testament is a continuation of God's efforts to redeem mankind despite our constant rebellious efforts. We're really not that much different than the Hebrew people in the wilderness. We, we still like to do things our own way. We see story after story after story throughout the Old Testament that says, yeah, that's you, <laughs> that's what you're like. We keep running away from God like, no, like uh, uh, Jonah does. We, we, we wanna do rebellious things like God's people and find ourselves in bondage to things that we should never have got trapped into, just like the Hebrew people the story of god's love redeeming people a lot of people think that the bible is just fairy tales made up by a bunch of random people full of contradictions and inconsistencies and errors how many of you have heard that over the years yeah like what is the bible anyway it's just you know random stuff it doesn't you know as it's just not true it's not full of inconsistencies or full of errors or full of contradictions they're all reasonably explained away, but it was perfectly consistent for what it was written for. It, it doesn't just contain truths or good principles to live your life by. It contains the, the the living word of God himself. You walk into God's presence when you open up his word. He wants to speak to you through his word. It's in complete agreement with itself for the purpose for which it, was, it wasn't written as a science textbook or a geography manual. And archaeologists continue to dig up towns and villages and places that the Bible has talked about for thousands of years. It's like, oh, I guess the Bible was right. Yeah, well, duh, yeah. yeah, of course it was right. You're just, you're just realizing that now? The bottom line is that these books were not the words of men. They're words of God written by men. And that's what sets the Bible apart. It wasn't just a vision that some guy had, wrote down a story. Forty authors, 1,500 years. It's incredibly consistent. All throughout all of these books, written in three languages, describing events on three different continents. 2 Peter 2.21 says, The prophecy, the word of God, came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Josh McDowell says, over 2,000 times in the Old Testament alone, there are phrases like, and God spoke to Moses, or the word of the Lord came unto Jonah, or God said. The Bible claims to be the record of the words of God. I think it's pretty important to know what God actually says Not just in the past, all these fun stories that we can read and accounts of God working with his people. What does it say for now, today? What does it say for the future? The Bible's not done. (laughs) The Bible has predicted what's coming. It's It's our roadmap into the future, not just the stories from the past. If we don't get a hold of the Bible now and understand what it's saying, how will we know what to expect? So why is the Bible so uncommon? Well, for all of those reasons and a few more. Let me just say four things. First of all, the Bible, it's alive. It's not words on a page. This book is, the Bible says itself, it just says that in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. The beginning before anything was created was the Word of God. We get the actual written version of the Word of God. But the Word of God is not contained all in here. The Word of God is alive. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us in John 1.14. The Word of God is living and active in Hebrews 4.12, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing unto dividing the soul and the spirit, joints from the marrow. It's able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The Word of God is... This is a living book. It's not dusty old King James book on your shelf. The other thing I realized is that you can't read the Bible the same way every time. You get a new understanding every time you read it. it, it it's like, it, it, what, it applies to me today? I read that verse 10 years ago, and it meant something different. Well, God is adapting his word to your life and your situation. Every time you read it, he's talking to you. Secondly, this book is timeless. It's uncommon because it's timeless. It's because it It's given comfort and direction and a way to get to God for 200 generations. And still, for the next number of generations, until Christ comes back, it is applicable and helpful for direction, for purpose, for meaning, for answers to life. It doesn't give a road. It gives a roadmap to where we're headed. And in the beginning, it says, was the word... Disciple John tells us before anything existed, God was way at the beginning with his word. And, and when everything is done, he's there too. The word of God is going to be consistently active and alive forever with us. In Revelation chapter 19, John says, The heaven was open, and this is with the coming of Christ. A white horse came, and he who was seated on it was named certain and true. Then he is judging and making war and righteousness. And his eyes are a flame of fire, the crowns are on his head, and he has a name in writing of which no man has knowledge but himself. And his, he is clothed with a robe, washed with blood, and his name is what? The Word of God. This is, this is Revelation. The Word of God is still active and alive and just about to wipe out all of his enemies so we can have an eternity with him. Third thing, the Bible is transformative. You can read a novel, fiction, or historical, uh, nonfiction, or these kinds of things. And, and you can have, like, that was a good read. I really enjoyed that. Good character development. You see the plot in here and all the twists and turns. But it won't change your life. Reading the Bible will transform your life, will set you free, will help you to understand the truths of God, the nature of God Himself, all that God has purpose for you. It's right here in this book. It transforms people who are stuck and chained and bondage and sets them free. It changes personalities that were mean and nasty and angry to those that are filled with hope and peace and love. It transforms people's hearts, sets the soul free. It gives answers to the most difficult questions in life, such as what is my purpose? What is the meaning? What is, where am I even going in my life? The Bible has the answers because God has a chance to speak to you. The book promises to give you direction to a life looking for meaning and purpose. The fourth thing is just it's so practical. I can take a cookbook and make a meal. That's pretty practical, pretty direct. God's Word also is just as applicable. Every time you have a conversation with someone, every time you see somebody in need, it gives you instruction how to step in how to get involved, how to craft your your language so that it brings hope and encouragement, instead of destroying people, it it builds people up. Talks about how to raise your kids as a parent. Talks about how to get along with church members who are a little cantankerous sometimes. It gives directions to us, practical, every day when we read this. And that's why we say, you know, start the day reading God's word because it might have a word you need that day. God may have an instruction for you that you need to know to get through the day. It's practical. There is a direct cause and effect in a person's life when they implement the biblical principles in their daily life. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, Every holy writing, the Scriptures, which comes from God, is profitable for teaching and training and guiding for education and righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete and trained and ready for every good work. So why is the Scripture so uncommon? Well, because it passes through the mind through the heart, and right to the soul, what book does that? What book can touch your very soul for all of eternity? That opens the door right into the presence of God. It allows you allows God to speak directly to every person who seeks after Him. The Word of God is alive. It's powerful. It's dynamic. It's pure truth, and it's a gateway to the divine. Let me just give you one last illustration. I share this one once in a while with people, but I I was in a very desperate situation when I was in seminary. I was a part-time youth and a worship leader in a church, and the deacons in the church decided that they were going to fire the pastor. They had been trying to fire him for a long time. There was a bit of division, and unrest in this church down in Texas. Uh, They had a history. I think they had fired 80 pastors in the history of their church, so this was going to be 81. And so I got a call and uh, the pastor says, Tom, pray for me. The deacons are meeting next door. Um, they're probably going to come fire me again. <laughs> and uh, and I, so I cried out to God, what, what's going on? Uh, and like, how, how can this be? There's so much division, unrest. And then uh, the scripture verse popped into my head. I didn't even know what it was. It was like Second Chronicles something or other. And I, So I went and I looked it up. And it was like word for word, the answer to my question that I, I asked God. And I said, oh, that's that's incredible. I said, but what about the pastor? How are you going to keep him from crashing and burning and never going into ministry again because of this situation? And then another passage, scripture reference popped into my head, and I looked it up, and it was exactly, it will keep him safe, his mind is stayed on him. It was like, what? It was like God was in the room, and he was speaking sentences to me, answering my very question word for word, and going, wow, that's I didn't know that was possible. I didn't know God could do that. Well, it's his word. He can direct you however you need. Did you go to him for the answers, and you look in his word, he has a chance to speak. What other book does that? God can direct you right into his presence and give you the answers you need in his word. And we let it sit on the shelf collecting dust. Or we go to other people for advice. We go to other councils. We go to other professionals sometimes to get, but we don't ask God what it is he has in mind for us in our situation, our family, our life, our business, our future. He's got the answers if we want to seek him out. He says, I will be found by you if you search for me with all of your heart. And that's what he's looking for is all of our heart. So he can reveal to us truths that we need to know that can transform our life and our heart. It is an uncommon book. It's an alive book. It's a practical book. It is a A challenging book because it challenges us to let Christ be in charge of our life. Today we do have a time to commemorate Christ's death on the cross, foretold in the Old Testament, accomplished in the New Testament, and today we are recipients of this act of unselfishness, act of sacrifice. We get to honor the author and perfecter of our salvation today. And we read about it in the scriptures. Jesus himself was spending time with his disciples. It was a Passover time. It was a feast. It was a celebration. But he was sad. He knew that in a a, a few hours he was going to be arrested and he was going to be thrown into jail. He was going to be mocked and beaten and whipped for us so we didn't have to be. The Bible tells us that On the night he was betrayed, the very night his own disciples were going to hand him over to his enemies. As was foretold in the Old Testament, Jesus said in Luke chapter 22, verse 14, when the hour had come, Jesus sat down and the 12 apostles were with him. And he said to them, with fervent desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I will no longer eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And then he took the cup, and he gave thanks, and he said, take this and divide it amongst yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And then it says... In verse 19, he took bread and he broke it. I don't know what's going through his mind at that moment when he's breaking the bread, envisioning what might happen to him in the next few days on a cross. But he said, take this. It's my body, which is given for you and do this in remembrance of me. The living word gave his life for us. Would you break your wafer and do this in remembrance of Christ together? Father, that moment with your disciples was transformative. The watershed moment, the commemorative moment of sacrifice, of selflessness. The reason you came to give your life as a ransom for many. You knew it was going to happen from even before the world was created. You knew that we would be sinful and rebellious people, deserving death, but you gave an opportunity for us to have life. If We would yet put our trust in you and believe in you. Thank you, Father, for the sacrifice of your Son. Jesus, thank you for loving us so much that you would be willing to pay the ultimate price. And then he says in verse 20, likewise, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is a new covenant. in my blood, which is shed for you, I know the disciples were totally confused. They had no idea what he was saying. They were having a party. They were having a feast. He was talking about his blood and his body broken. He knew what was coming. And as we get to know Jesus, he reveals that to us to know how to prepare. But let's do this in remembrance of him to drink this cup in remembrance of his shed blood for us. Thank you, Jesus, for your blood shed for us, that the very life of blood would drain from you on the cross, and that you would slowly sink into a time of confusion and despair, thinking that you had become sin. One who knew no sin would now become our sin, and that you would become separated from your Father for a time in hell, and that when that time was up, when the three days were up, that you would be resurrected to a life to live in victory over all of your enemies. May we be faithful to you, uh, Jesus, as we live our life to honor your calling upon us. Let us be your ambassadors of hope to a world in despair. pray this in Christ's name, amen.